to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, and the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, and the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Well, it's a pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Ahmad. Uh, we have had the, the pleasure of knowing and serving Dr. Ahmad, and he's serving us over these past 20 years. It's been over 20 years. And uh, Dr. Ahmad is the president of Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary in Amman, Jordan. Uh, they've been training pastors for years and planting them in, I think, 21 different countries have trained pastors through the seminary. Dr. Ahmad is also a pastor. He preaches each week. He wears many hats, and uh, by God's grace, he wears them well. Uh, unique to Dr. Ahmad, I think, is not just scholarship in terms of being a, a theologian, but also a gentleness in how he walks out uh, faith in the gospel himself personally, uh, but also as he trains his students. Not just uh, character, though, conduct. You know, in this day and age of of people coming and going, and, and we see people, uh, yeah, kind of like flashes in the pan. Uh, Dr. Ramada has been faithfully serving for all these years, and uh, the fruit is is producing. Um, yeah, it, it encourages us greatly to see the fruit that's being produced through your ministry. So, brother, we we love you. We ask you to come up, and he's going to break the word for us today. And I pray that you would be attentive to it. Well, good morning. It's so good to be here with you. Really, it's a joy and a privilege to see some familiar faces and some new ones. And I bring greetings from my wife, Julia. We're sorry she cannot be here. She's in Dallas. left her there uh, just to go through a series of tests. She's not very, feeling very well yet to be able to travel that much. Uh, I'm going at the speed of light, and <laughs> she's, so I have to be careful uh, to uh, make sure she's okay. But she sends her love to you all. It's great to see you. And I'm so thankful for Pastor Tom for his humility and courage to give up his pulpit from some Arab far away. <laughs> and uh, really been encouraged through our friendship. You've been a real encouragement to me personally, your example, your leadership, just the way you lead, the way you relate to people, your love. I enjoy hearing you, your sermons every once in a while and following you. And it's a, such a joy to be with you here, really at home. It's been so many years. And we're getting older, but we have a hope that we'll be in a, an eternal abode, never to part uh, in glory one day. I, uh, I chose uh, to do an exposition of Psalm 24. Why that is? Well, um, we're, we're on a different calendar in the Middle East. We just came out of Holy Week. We just had Easter and uh, before that, uh, Palm Sunday. So it's, it's on my mind, and I thought this was a, a thinking of this. Actually, I began preparing this on this long flight from the Middle East to the U.S., 17-hour flight. So it's this is a sermon prepared 
halfway to heaven. I mean, this is... Uh, <laughs> and so I, I thought you know, this is also appropriate, you know, when, uh, to come uh, to a church, a dear church like this, nothing better than to, to, to do an exposition of a part of scripture that focuses on worship. Cannot go wrong there. I also had a, f- a friend who is a, a Jewish believer in Christ, Avner Bosky and Rachel, who wrote the most beautiful song of Psalm 24. It's entitled The Ancient Gates. You may find it. It's absolutely fantastic. It mixes some Western music with Jewish, Israeli music, and Arab music. It's really fantastic. Um, so it's a special psalm. And the subject is really, it's all about our hearts and his presence. How, the state of our hearts and view who, of who God is and what he does on our behalf. Uh, it's really it's talking about a, a way of life. The, the, uh, the occasion of this song is the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant and a sort of a procession, a triumphal procession, bringing that Ark after a victory in battle and walking through the gates of Jerusalem. Victory, great victory. And the Ark represents the presence of Yahweh amongst his people. Typically, commentaries would say this is really speaking about uh, the time when uh, David brought the ark uh, from the uh, home of Obed-Edom after he rescued that city. Uh, this is the story uh, is in 2 Samuel 6. However, there are similar occasions. For example, when um, Moses was leading the people in, in the wilderness, and oftentimes there's that procession of victory, carrying the ark, the same kind of, of theme. Joshua, the same thing, entering the promised land. Uh, even the Hillel Psalms that are sung during the uh, Feast of Tabernacles would repeat the same. So we cannot be so sure about the occasion of this specific, specifically, but nevertheless, it's the same theme that we can learn from, uh, inspired by God. And the, the observance of this procession is kind of, kind of like a liturgy uh, in an order of worship, sung antiphonally, you know, choir to choir, voice to voice, sort of like, and uh, in a triumphal cele- celebration. And so it's really uh, kind of sending a, a, a constant challenge to all of us uh, in, in view of who God is. How, how do we do that? How do we celebrate it's a repeated observance we are to have constantly as we think of a transcendent God who nevertheless did not stay in the ivory tower but came down to us and was involved in our lives and came to save us. See, that's the kind of God we're talking about. So how do we respond to such a God? So what we're going to do this morning uh, by grace is talk about um, God's attributes first. Secondly, our hearts, um, our hearts towards him. But thirdly, our proclamation of him. So God's attributes, our hearts towards him, and our proclamation of him. These are the three subjects we'll uh, we'll go through. So first of all, God's attributes. So uh, I'm actually reading through a different translation than the one read here. I'll try to change it at once while I, before I knew what it was, but I'm using the New American Standard Bible. They're all translations in the end, but we have it, the inspired text. It's all the, the Word of God, <laughs> the inerrant, powerful Word of God. 
There's a, a, a declaration, probably made by the congregation as they're marching in, and it goes like this, the earth is the Lord's. Or literally, it's to the Lord is the earth. So it begins with to the Lord, to Yahweh, belongs the earth. All right? And all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. So it's speaking about um, ownership. He owns it all. To the Lord is the earth. He's the only, it's, it's the only uh, part of a verse that does not have a parallelism, you know, to not, not repeated in other words, in other, in, to communicate the emphasis that everything belongs to him. Uh, uh, he is unique and unequaled. That's the idea. Uh, then it says, the fullness. To, to Yahweh belongs the earth and its fullness. You know, that word is used... Uh, with a command to, for human beings and animals to fill the earth, uh, the fullness of the earth, it's the, all creatures and contents, in other words, everything. It's, a, it's amazing how, how so many people live and forget that, <laughs> that they're creatures uh, of a creator, of one creator, one and only true God. But then it, 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 it moves from the fullness of the earth to those dwelling, the dwellers of the earth. So it says, to, to the Lord is the earth and all its fullness, the world, that's literally the surface of the earth, and who dwell upon it. Um, that, uh, so that, to all of that belongs to the Lord. Uh, so that's, the, that's the, the announcement, the declaration, as this march is going on. And then, uh, right after that, uh, it says why. It gives us a reason why he owns everything. <laughs> Very simple reason. The reason is because he is, he is the creator. So everything belongs to him because he created everything. So it says, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Uh, and it speaks uh, of this creation as if it's a building uh, standing on pillars, uh, so, uh, but then uh, it, re the reference to sea and rivers reminds us of the Genesis account, where it's repeated how, how God created the dry, dry land from the water. So we have it in, in Genesis 1-2. It says, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then, on, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let let it separate the waters from the waters. And then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so God called the dry earth, the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. So he, that's the, the whole, it's a kind of a summary of the creation account. But then there's a kind of a, a polemic against pagan mythology that talks about seas and rivers whether it's the Ugaritic mythology or Babylonian mythology, there's this uh, belief that the waters and uh, the seas and the rivers are uh, a threat to order. So Baal uh, comes, in the case of Ugaritic, uh, or Marduk, in case, of, in case of the Babylonians, he comes to defeat these, these powers of the seas and the rivers and then uh, thereby claim that they have rule and kingship because they did that. Well, here the simple verse, Yahweh created everything simply on the seas and the rivers. They are not a threat to him. You know, he's in totally in charge 
and it simply creates a, just a, a, as a polemic against that they, they're so afraid of these powers where God just creates everything on the seas and, ri- and the rivers, and there's no such thing as powers that threaten him. Uh, so it's that thing. And then the Psalms are filled with the Lord's kingship. Um, for example, the Lord sits enthroned over engulfing waters. The Lord sits enthroned as the eternal king, and on and on, the same thing is repeated. He owns it all because he's, a, he's, a, he's the one who created everything, all of dry land and seas and everything on them um, and in them. Now this, uh, of course, this, uh, this theme of God being creator and thereby owning everything is repeated through, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it comes to a climax, obvi- again, <laughs> obviously, in the book of Revelation, the last book inspired in the Bible, where in chapter 4 of Revelation, we find the, the, the four living creatures, uh, very beautiful creatures in heaven, uh, like the angels who were uh, uh, proclaiming holy, holy, holy. So emphasis on his holiness. And then with that proclamation, again, there's this choir, and then there's a response from the 24 elders in heaven, probably representing all uh, all the redeemed of humanity of the Old and New Testaments, responding and to, to say to that declaration with the word worthy. In other words, you because you are holy, you are worthy, you are worth us giving you everything because you are all powerful. And your power was manifested in creating everything. So here you have the, the theme of the holiness of God, the power of God and the creation, creating creative power of God, all packed into one. You know, so that there's that uh, that worship. And <clears throat> when you think of the holiness of God, actually, one way to look at it is is to think of it as uh, he's he's set apart in that every attribute of his is perfect. Every single attribute is a hundred percent, no deficiency. All the attributes work together. This perfect God uh, is worthy of all of our worship because he created us. And in uh, Trinitarian language, and we have to talk about the Trinity, <laughs> you know, this perfection of the attributes are shared between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit from eternity past, and they kind of overflow to us, overflow into creating the world. You know, that's, that's how it is. Uh, so that he's creating to give, to bless you know, he's not creating because he lacks a relationship. He is in relationship from eternity. So he creates to overflow, to bless us out of the fecundity of his, his attributes. He creates the world. So he is creator because he is holy and he is holy because he is creator. So, you know, of course, everything we come across in Old Testament grows and grows and builds and comes to a climax. And that's what we have, we have here. So this is our God. That's who he is. You know, that's what we are not. He is a creator. We are not. He owns it all, and no one else. This is the, the truth. This is there's no other truth. This is the truth. He is the creator, God. So, that's the first thing. So, what should our hearts look like before such a God? How should we respond? How should our hearts? What should we think, feel? plan? How should we live if we know such a God? So that's our 
second point here, and the, uh, perhaps here is as, as the procession arrives at the gate of Jerusalem, a question is raised by the congregation, and this is in verse 3. And it goes like this. Who may ascend into the hill or the mountain of Yahweh, the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? All right. So here's there's, there's this, these words, who may ascend, who may stand. So it's looking for uh, a permission. Who is allowed? Who is qualified to come close? Who is, who is allowed to approach such a God? And when it says, who, who may ascend, who may stand, these words are used typically in the Old Testament to refer to those coming to worship on this holy hill. Uh, now this uh, holy hill, the mount, refers to the mount uh, in Jerusalem where eventually the temple was built. All right? But it's, it's a holy hill because that's where worship happens. Uh, and at this point of the writing of the psalm by David, the temple had not been built yet. So it's referring to this holy hill. But there's a, a parallel psalm, which is Psalm 15. It has the same kind of question, same kind of theme as Psalm 24. And it begins like this, O Lord, Yahweh, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Here's that same thing. So here's that holy place of worship where eventually the tent was erected, and then the temple was built. So it's a place of worship. Um, now, this, is, this theme of worship uh, of, at, at the holy mountain also comes to climax in, in, uh, in the Bible, eventually in the New Testament. But even it's, it's prophesied in the Old Testament at a time when we know it's referring to at the second coming of Christ, when he puts everything uh, right, and he comes down, and there he says, for example, in Isaiah 2, verses 2 and following, in future days, the mountain of the Lord, <laughs> the Lord's temple, will endure as the most important of mountains. Uh, all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the Lord's mountain. You know, I, I, you can imagine uh, at the second coming of Christ what it's going to be like. It just comes to a, cl a climax. So we, we're on our way to that, to witnessing that great, glorious uh, event. So who may uh, approach, who may uh, ascend, who can stand, worship words, holy hill, a holy mountain, uh, or this mountain of the Lord, the holy place. Um, and, and again, it's where sacrifices are required to come and approach God. Um, and... Um, and again, it's that holiness, holiness, creation theme are tied together again in this as we go forward. Uh, then the response comes. So the, there's that question, who may ascend? Who may stand? Who is qualified? Permission, who is permitted to do that? The answer comes, here it is, verse 4. Uh, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. All right, so it begins with, well, when, here we see sin uh, suddenly shows up. He, who has, uh, he has clean hands. It's assuming that humanity in general does not have clean hands. And clean hands refers to uh, the result of having clean hands, uh, clean actions. So it's talking about this fall of humanity. And again, we need to always remember when we see sin, 
to remember that that points uh, uh, indirectly to God's holiness, his perfection, because when God created the world, his perfection demands that he gives us freedom. It, his, that's how he is. He's just that kind of God. So he created us, he says to Adam, of all the trees you can eat, except this one. That's choice. So he honored his humanity, gave him dignity by giving, gave, giving him a choice. But we all sinned in Adam, and we know the, the tragedy of that. So it's presupposing this, uh, and here's... Uh, but God is, is trying to redeem humanity, to bring back humanity. There's just this, uh, these uh, requirements uh, to come to him. All right, so clean hands. And that can... Uh, another way to say it is innocence. So there's a verse that says, I washed my hands in innocence. So innocent actions, you know. And then it says, uh, a pure heart. This is the, the heart behind innocent actions, clean actions. It's the, the mind, the purity of mind, will, emotions. You know. Why? It, uh, don't you wish we can be like that, just in every way? You know, it's, it brings joy to us to be like that. So, uh, and then... The, the third one is, he who has not lifted up his soul. So uh, hands speak of actions, uh, heart speaks of mind, will, and, and, and feelings. Then soul, uh, that's another word, a third word, speaks of all of life, integrity of life. So when he talks about bringing up his soul, it's the idea of uh, bringing his soul up to something, it's to uh, trust in something, make something so important that they trust it so much, it's so important to them, does not bring his soul up to falsehood or literally to vanity, to emptiness, to value something as, as being very more important, more than God. That's the idea. I remember, I remember once uh, um, reading in Augustine, he says, one of the main problems of humanity is disordered love. What we're supposed to love a lot, we love a little. What we're supposed to love a little, we love too much. We have a problem with our love life. That's our problem. So does not bring his soul up to what is empty. We, we live for so many things that are not related to God. They're not as important as God. We, we deify them. So that's the idea here. Uh, it's uh, talking about integrity of, of life. But then, he did, uh, then the fourth uh, uh, character is, uh, has not sworn de deceitfully. The background to this is when somebody takes an oath, uh, all right, um, they uh, are supposed to be truthful. They are supposed to follow uh, with their oath, especially if they take an oath. So, uh, of course, uh, man in his sinfulness would take advantage of this and say, well, I did not take an oath, so I can get away with X. <laughs> but in the progress of Revelation, when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, it says, do not swear, do not take an oath at all, meaning this whole thing is talking about truthfulness. We, our words must be our covenant. We are to be truthful. There's no room for, uh, for anything else. So that's what he's uh, talking about. So here it is. Here's a summary. Hands, actions, clean. Hearts, mind, emotion, will, pure. Souls, integrity of life. Words, truthfulness. These are four. 
Now in that psalm again, Psalm 15, the parallel psalm, it has a list of 10 requirements. So we have a summary here. And maybe those 10 in Psalm 15 are a little bit like the Ten Commandments. Not, not totally a one-one correspondence, but what we have here is, a, is really uh, saying, you know, follow God's values. You know. And mind you, um, the Ten Commandments, when we think of the, 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 the law, they're not, they're not a way to come to God. As a, a, a Lebanese pastor said it one time, in Lebanon, that is, north of Jordan, he said, the Ten Commandments are not our way to God. They are rather his way to us. He is really inviting us to share uh, in, his, in his divine nature, his attributes. That's what he's doing. That comes out in the next promise. That comes up, it says, he shall, the one who's, who is qualified, he shall receive a blessing, shalom, from, from God. And uh, from the Lord, uh, from the Lord and, right, and then receive also righteousness from the God of his salvation. He will receive a, a, a blessing from this God and, and righteousness. Um, so the one who carries himself to emptiness does not carry himself to emptiness, would carry the blessing of God and, and uh, all that comes with it. And then will carry also the righteousness of God. And that also uh, comes to a, a glorious uh, fulfillment in what we understand as justification. We are not only... Um, in Christ forgiven of our sins, but we are clothed with his righteousness. And that's, that's it. You know? so, so as we, um, we have all of this in Christ, we have that salvation, but he's calling us on appropriating it, living it, so we can approach him like that. So that's, uh, that's our, uh, um, our heart. So, there's, so this is the, the uh, there's a question, there's the answer, and there's an, then there's a, perhaps there's a, uh, an affirmation by the people, and goes like this in verse 6. This is the generation of those who seek him. And uh, literally it can be those who study him. Uh, those who seek your faith. It's study and seeking. You know, those who go after him. This is the kind of generation, even Jacob. And I, I think this is speaking of God, the God of Jacob, but Jacob, the people, uh, are named after Jacob. And you may know the story of Jacob. And only very late in his life, he had to learn so much. He's speaking of Jacob's story. is really our story. In the end, he said, Jacob, your name is no longer Jacob. It's Israel. You've got to live that name. But Israel can have, uh, the name Israel can have two meanings. It can mean uh, that I fight uh, God, Israel, I am fighting against God, but it can be the opposite, that God is fighting for me. So Jacob had to learn that lesson to shift from what he has been doing all of his life, fighting against God, to letting God fight for him. So it became, you know, when Jacob speaks, Israel speaks. When Jacob does, Israel does. So now this thing grows, and then here we find it in the Psalms. So who are the people that come to such a God? They're the people that live this. Uh, they're the people of Jacob, who was named Israel. They're the people. And we are to live that way too, aren't we? You know, we have all the promises in Christ, but we are to live them, uh, and so on. So uh, at this point, we have this uh, word, sila, which is a pause. Maybe at this point, uh, uh, there's only the music is playing, no talking for a minute. 
and then comes the proclamation. This is, comes to the climax here. So we saw the attributes of God, who owns everything because he's creator, holy God. We saw who is qualified to approach such a God. We saw the requirements. And now there's this uh, proclamation. So we move from his attributes to our hearts, and now our proclamation. So how does this sound bring it out? Uh, so now here what we have is a liturgical dialogue where it takes place in repeated fashion between those outside the gates and those inside the gates, perhaps. We're just speculating here, imagining what it's looking like because of, of the wording of, of this text. And a plea is made outside the gates saying, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. My goodness. So he's speaking to the gates as if they're persons, they're personified. Lift up your heads. The lifting up of heads is, is, a, uh, is an idiom to speak about honor. You lift up your head, you, you raise your head in honor. So lift up your head. There's honor, great honor for Jerusalem. The gates stand for Jerusalem. There's great honor for the city because of who's coming in. The person coming in. So lift up uh, your heads, O gates, repeated. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that who's coming in? The king of glory. Whoa. Uh, and he's speaking of the gates. He calls them ancient, or literally olam, um, which is um, perpetual, maybe even eternal. You know, it's, it's again emphasizing that this is going, there's, no, there's not going to be defeat of Yahweh ever. Uh, we're moving into that ultimate victory where sin does not exist anymore. So that's where we're moving. This, this is where we're going. Uh, so the assurance of fulfillment. Uh, but, but then uh, here's, here's this person coming in. This transcendent God is coming. It's fa fascinating in the book of Revelation. We keep going to that in, in describing this God. It describes that as this way. It is he who is and was, it doesn't say and will be, it's a he who is and was and who is coming. He's coming here. He doesn't remain up there. He's coming here. Here he is, the king of glory. You know, the word glory, as I'm sure your pastor explained to you, well, I'll take a risk in case he has not. Um, and the word glory in Hebrew and in Arabic comes from the word for liver. Kebed, kabod, kebed, all right? Liver is the, uh, the heaviest organ in the body, and it's central. So when you give glory to him, you liver him. You make him central. You make him heavy. You know, think of a stone in the midst of a river. The water goes around the stone because the stone is heavy. So is he heavy to you? Now, the heaviest person in the entire universe, where everything else revolves around him, is this king of glory coming into our cities. My goodness. This is the God of, who owns everything because he created everything. He's coming down to our world. <laughs> He's coming. Who is this king of glory? The answer is, again, this choir, back and forth, antiphonally, going back and forth. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. His victory theme again. All right? So... Um, uh, so it's a repeated recognition that the Lord's presence is in every victory. He's there in every victory. This is our God. He's a victorious God. 
All right. The, the idea here is to get rid of the idea that, like some people think, that the world would continue with uh, evil existing eternally and good existing eternally. There's no duality here. You know, in any case, uh, evil is not a thing to be created. God allowed it because of who he is, but there will come a, a day when evil no longer exists because of this king of glory <laughs> who is coming in. All right? So then the repeated dialogue, again in verses 9 and, and 10, lift up your heads okay, again. Lift them up, you know. O ancient doors, and that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? That the Lord, uh, and then a, a different answer is given. The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The Lord of the angelic beings. The Lord of all power. The supreme one who controls all of the, even the angelic uh, host. He is in charge of them. He is the one uh, coming in. The innumerable, innumerable heavenly hosts in, in great splendor of, un, of undisputed lordship. That's who's coming in. So, uh, so th this, is it. this is it. So it's really telling us, okay, here's who he is. We saw his attributes, as a, who owns everything because he's creator. We saw we are sh what we are supposed to be in our hearts in view of who he is. Now it tells us to proclaim him, proclaim him thus as a king of glory that the whole universe depends on. Everything rests in him. This is what, what we're supposed to do. So in the end... We ask ourselves, well, where do we get the, the power to do this? Where do we get the strength? Where do we get the motive to do this? You know, how, 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 do we, how do we do it? What excites us to do it? We have to, we have to hang on to something. And I think, you know, partly, uh, I think you know the answer, but partly, I think this, this psalm, okay, uh, it really tells us, uh, in one sense, how the New Testament, Old Testament are just so connected. We, we really don't understand the Old Testament passage fully until we, we read the New Testament. In fact, Christ told us that everything is talking about him anyway. <laughs> He's the center of it all. But you know this, this, um, this entrance of the King of Glory into Jerusalem with the ark coming in, it's prefigured in, uh, on Palm Sunday, isn't it? On Palm Sunday, the King of Glory, who was not seen as the King of Glory, was he? he comes very humbly on a donkey, welcomed by a few people of one nation. But that prefigures a time when he comes in great glory with angelic entourage, great glory, with believers from every nation welcoming him. This is the, the assurance. So the Palm Sunday is speaking of the time of the second coming, when he comes. But for that to work, a heavy price must be paid. So he entered Jerusalem on Sunday of that, that great day, Palm Sunday, only to face the cross on Good Friday. You know, he's, here's the king of glory. Wow. Something nobody would do. Satan can never do. He takes on our sin, the righteous one, the creator of, of it all. <laughs> wow. He takes our sin, goes to the cross, and dies for us. So whoever believes in him would be forgiven, would be clothed with his righteousness. He, he came down. So 
That, so Palm Sunday had to happen. But how do we know that this is what happened on Palm Sunday? Well, we know for sure because of Easter Sunday. So we have Palm Sunday that demanded Good Friday that was assured by Easter Sunday. All right, that's the thing. So that's what happened. So where do we see it in Psalm 24? Where do we see that same thing, theme going on into the New Testament? What's well, right there? It's the ark. They're carrying the ark. That's the king of Lord. They're marching in. What's the ark? You know, that's the ark that's placed in the Holy of Holies, on top of which the blood is sprinkled from the sacrifice. It's called the cover, the mercy seat. Okay? Keferet in Hebrew, translated hilasterion in Greek, the Greek Old Testament, which comes into the Greek New Testament. And guess who's called the mercy seat? That same exact word, in the precision of inspiration, Christ is the propitiation. It's that very word. Christ is the mercy seat. Here's the, the wrath of God declared on human sin. At the same time, the very wrath of God declared is the wrath of God absorbed in the blood covered on the Ark of the Covenant. So there, you see the centrality of the cross right there from the Old Testament. This is what gives us the power. This is the kind of God we're talking about. And so uh, uh, he alone can do this. And by the way, um, now he's... Uh, um, to defeat evil, it's not a matter of a battle of good versus evil. You know, if it's a matter of battle, evil can return and return. But the thing that defeats evil forever is the death of Christ. That is victory par excellence on which all other victories are based. <laughs> so Christ right now is dismantling all powers, all authorities, one by one. They're already defeated. And he's calling us to share in this battle. Today, as believers, we share in a battle against an enemy that has already been defeated at the cross. But we share in this. We were called upon. I mean, we're, you know the verses. We're, we battle not against flesh and blood. We battle against the principality. Be careful. Be careful not to harbor bitterness, Paul says. We, he, Paul says, we're not ignorant of his schemes. Be careful to be forgiving. You know, uh, Peter talks about the, the Satan as a lion <laughs> seeking to devour us. And on, James said, resist the devil, and on and on. So we are called to, to share in, in this battle today as we move towards an, uh, an eternity when sin does not exist. You know, and, and then in New Testament eschatology, and there's so much here, and I'm closing, closing with this, speaks of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, as abolishing all rule, all authority, all power. He's abolishing them. In other words, he subjugates them. And then he puts them under his feet. We're headed for a glory where there's no sin. So in the cross, he saved us from the judgment of sin. Today he's making himself available to help us, to save us from the power of sin. But someday he'll save us from the very presence of sin. Isn't that amazing? So we can uh, really uh, summarize the message today like this. Now, holy living before God, holy living before God, or if you want, our hearts before him, 
and our proclamation of who he is, that stems from the realization that he is the king of glory who alone created us and who alone came to us to save us from sin, past, present, and future. That's the king of glory. Wow. Isn't he worth it? Let's bow our heads for prayer.